Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A hundred years ago, uh, we're all starting to, well, not all of us, but uh, those that are so minded are looking back at the First World War, which, uh, as I kind of put in the introduction to the show uh, online, it really did set the scene for what we consider the modern era brought to an end, at least for the Anglosphere time kind of uh, view of the world, uh, the Edwardian era, and everything that followed and how we live today is really so closely related to those decisions that were made in 1914 through 1918 and the uh, final signing of the Versailles Treaty after that. And we brought on what I think is going to be a great guest today to talk about that. We're going to use this kind of a, a touching off point, an article that he wrote recently in the National Interest, the, uh, titled World War I, Five Ways Germany Could Have Won the First Battle of Atlantic, part of their Five Ways series. You can find a link to that over at the show page if you'd like to read it. But we're going to broaden it a bit and we're talk about some of the conditions that led up to it and some of those things that today are still affecting uh, how we look at the world and how we are forced to interact with uh, the results of those decisions so long ago. Yeah, Jim Holmes has a Ph.D. Uh, he is also a professor of strategy at the Naval War College and a senior fellow at the University of Georgia School of Public International Affairs. Uh, he's not just a pretty face in academia. He also is a former U.S. Navy surface warfare officer. And after um, that, he has spent his time in the academic arena uh, and has also received his uh, Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He's uh, published books as well with his uh, longtime co-author and guest here on Midrats, Toshi Yoshihara. They are Strategy in the Second Nuclear Age and also Red Star Over the Pacific. He's published over 25 chapter books and 150 scholarly essays, along with hundreds of opinions and columns, think tank analysis, and other works. He blogs over at the Naval Diplomat and is an occasional contributor to foreign policy, the national interest, our buddies over at War on the Rock, CNN, and, of course, U.S. Naval Institute's proceedings. Also, if you've ever uh, seen him as a uh, moderator on a panel, he's uh, quite good at that. We saw him last over in San Diego. But, uh, hey, Jim, we got you on Midrise today. Welcome back. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, I, have, I have to admit, I'm feeling a little bit blue. They, uh, they towed away the USS Saratoga from Newport the other day, which uh, I don't know about you, but I deployed with that ship. So it seems as though the Narragansett Bay has become a non-naval port, except for except for schoolhouses now. I, I saw that old Sarah was yeah. uh, sold her a little long in the tooth. <laughs> yeah, she looked horrible. It was uh, it was it was a long time coming. Yeah, one of her sisters, uh, the, the Connie, I actually have some time on it. <laughs> What's funny is uh, when I was on the Connie in, in 2001, she was in better shape than the Enterprise was in the late 90s when I was on her. But of course, the Enterprise just uh, left the left the pier uh, and is being cut apart as we speak. 
Yeah, so I mean, rumor has it that the uh, the John F. Kennedy will will come back, will come to Newport as a museum ship. So uh, we're all hoping for that. So it may work out okay. Yeah, they've uh, they've got some some good wood there in the uh, in the wardroom. I think the Kennedy, if they can uh, get the needle gun on it enough and prettier up, she would make a pretty good museum ship. One one hopes. Well, hey, b- before we get into the the specifics of the article you wrote. Um, I thought just as a, a scene setter is, you know, looking at the World War One, it, it's easy, and it's a good excuse, I think, you know, the August of uh, 2014 to look back 100 years. Um, but many times it's frustrating to, to get uh, uh, people who are more focused on, you know, getting their wings or getting their qualifications or working through their PQS or focusing on their career to look back in history. And I know you see this at the, at the War College. A lot of times people are only introduced to the lessons that were, were hard fought and hard learned until mid-career or later. And I think that one of the challenges of World War One is, is pretty well exemplified if you're in Washington, D.C. You have this huge monstrosity of a World War II memorial plopped right in the middle uh, but you had to look real hard to find that little tiny World War One memorial, and, and in many ways, it, it's kind of forgotten. But there are a lot of things about the First World War that the uh, the national security professional today should have in the back of his mind. What are some of those big, broad things about what happened a hundred years ago that is really important for people today to have inside their brain bucket to make sure that it, it flavors any of the observations they're making about? Today. Oh wow! That's a, I think you just uh, I think you just uh, set the scene for an entire hour. I think I could take up an entire hour answering that. So I, I guess I don't know. Let me start really broad, and maybe I'll just go through three things, and then we'll see where that uh, takes us. You mentioned the the cultural Perfect. aspect is huge. I, uh, I mean, you, you talked about the essentially the end of an era and all that's. I mean, just look at Downton Abbey for example. Everybody everybody watches that. Once you actually see that uh, unfolding in the middle of that. Uh, in the, in the middle of that uh, uh, TV program on PBS, so yeah, there, there's certainly that that sort of thing is going. I mean, it's I don't I'm not sure it really dawned on me until the first time I traveled in the British Isles just how different it is. We we think about World War II as being the war, whereas if you go around uh, uh, in in Great Britain, you see all the you know the big war memorials are all are all pretty much uh, dedicated to the Great War. So there's a lot of that. I mean, they, they, of course, there's a lot of great cultural artifacts that over in Europe that go with it, uh, like the poems of Wilfred Owen and Rupert Brooke and all that, all that great stuff. Which, strangely enough, I don't think you see so much from the Second World War or other uh, wars that have come after. So, yeah, there's there's, there's clearly a lot of grist there on the cultural side. Uh, secondly, I think the uh, I think one of the other things, one of the big questions that we always raise with our students, and it's one that I get a lot of grist out of, is is just the the, the way this was a debate over. Uh, whether economic interdependence puts an end to, puts an end to great power war. This is something that you hear uh, in this current era of uh, globalization. Uh, keep in mind that in, in some respects the world was uh, as as globalized or more globalized a century ago than it is now. But yet the, we, we still saw the, we still saw uh, countries essentially flout their economic interests in order to do what they think they need, do what they th- think or excuse me do what they thought they needed to do on on the battlefield in, in Western Europe. There was a great debate between our guy uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, president of the War College, and uh, uh, and an English intellectual named uh, Norman Angel. Angel published a book just before the war, claiming that uh, no nation in its right mind would go to war because it would be economically disastrous. Uh, Mahan Mahan went back; they went back and forth in the press and so forth. And Mahan said that simply isn't true. 
Uh, Nate Angel obviously had the the misfortune to publish that right before the war and ended up looking kind of bad. But nonetheless, it's it's a debate that still echoes today. And finally, uh, just from a strictly naval uh, standpoint, it's it's kind of interesting that uh, just about now in 1914, the United States is not in the war, obviously, until 1917. But we are thinking, or at least certain officials in the United States are thinking about what to do with the United States as long as the war is going on and the United States stays on the sidelines. There was a there was an interesting uh, exchange of letters between uh, former uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, between Mahan, who lived only a few months into the First World War, uh, and with the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, of course the two Roosevelts being uh, uh, distant cousins. And they were just basically debating where to put the Navy. This was before the days of the two-ocean Navy. Uh, and they were saying, okay, well, we've got this one-ocean fleet. What should we do with it? And they ultimately ended up the, uh, deciding that if the Navy needs to stay in one ocean, it ought to be the Pacific, just in case the Japanese uh, snap up the German islands in the Pacific and so forth. So kind of, a, so there was some, some big thinking going on in naval circles as well uh, at the outset of the conflict. When, when we look at World War One, one of the most confusing aspects for me has always been it, it, it seemed like a war that should never have happened uh, because it, it, the way people got into it didn't make any sense. Can you kind of go over to the extent you can so we can lead into your article, you know, how did they get in this mess of, of, a, of the Great War? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's when we talk, when we think about these uh, these big conventional conflicts as being sort of straightforward, we're always differentiating between conventional and unconventional war. But yet, even there's even a lot of ambiguity, even in these big uh, conventional wars like the First World War. And historians still go the rounds on on why exactly it happened. John, for example, John Keegan, when he did his book on the First World War. Uh, probably in the late 1990s, I don't remember exactly which year, but he basically started off that book and he said, look, this was a needless conflict. If there had been goodwill in European capitals, it never should have happened. So, I mean, there's, I guess, and I guess this relates back to the cultural aspect, aspects as well. We know that Thucydides tells us that nations go to war for fear, honor, and interest, these being the three strongest motives that, uh, that impel human actions. So you can, you can have a lot of fun, uh, in sort of a macabre sense, uh, applying Thucydides to, to figure out why they did what they did. If in a, uh, to try to nail it down a little bit more analytically, though, I would probably call attention to Clausewitz, uh, his famous dictum that the value of the political object is what determines the magnitude and the duration of the effort that you put into gaining that object. Basically, how many lives, how much treasure, how much uh, military hardware and so forth that you spend on a, on a conflict and for how long. I think that uh, to the extent that European decision makers were thinking in analytical terms like that, I think they were severely lowballing the magnitude, how much it would cost, and also the duration of the conflict. So essentially, they, so essentially, they thought that if it was going to be a cheap effort, they could get their way quickly and uh, and painlessly, then they, they could uh, go to war for uh, sort of so-so political aims. I'm not sure that, that that probably doesn't answer anything, but maybe that'll at least uh, chain on to chain on to some more uh, productive discussion. There's a, um, a a picture out, a little comic, I think, that has a bunch of sailors fighting in a, in a bar and equates how World War One uh, was fought uh, in, in bar fight terms, which is it's funny, but it's surprisingly accurate. But the war, you know, everybody can draw certain things. But one thing I've always found interesting is everybody focuses on. Battle in Flanders with the British and the French and the Germans and the Americans coming at the last minute, which is kind of natural because that's the environment we came in. But 
the what happened in in many ways was the match that lit the tinderbox was a long simmering almost inevitable conflict between two empires that did not survive the war the austro-hungarian empire and the russian empire and some very interesting things happened in the beginning involving pan-slavism which uh, you know, I've been looking around trying to find some modern version. I, I think in many ways when you look at uh, what's going on in the Slavic countries, that pan-Slavism is, is pretty much gone, and I guess it's been replaced in some ways by that Russian nationalism. But huge war battles were fought between the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians before the Russians collapsed at the time, the, the Germans just destroyed uh, the Russian armies in the Battle of Tannenberg to the north. To the south, the Russians had just as much of a, uh, a victory over the Austro-Hungarian uh, armies down to the south. And that whole pan-Slavic movement that led that tinderbox that we saw echoes of in the Balkans, is that movement as dead as it seems right now? Has it morphed into what I think it might be morphing as? Or is that pan-Slavic attitude something that is still in the background that might creep up again? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you're, you're quite right that the it wasn't just those two empires. I mean, in a, in a very real sense, World War One was the graveyard of empires. Of course, Germany did not uh, survive in its in its current form. But especially, especially as you pointed out, Russia Russia was broken up. Uh, Turkey was uh, Turkey. The Ottoman Empire was broken up, and. Uh, uh, and of course, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had been sort of decentralizing over the course of the 19th century, uh, ultimately fell as well, and just became Austria. Uh, what you're referring to when you talk about pan-Slavism is, uh, is certainly a movement. I mean, the 19th century was the age in which uh, in, w in which this national consciousness uh, spread, and it wasn't just the Slavs. I mean, that's the age of the Young Turks. The young there was pretty much a young nationalist group of, of, of any ethnicity or religious group that you wanted to talk about. But yeah, the idea was that there would be a, a Slavic. Essentially, it started off essentially as a movement for a for a third uh, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Keep in mind, the Austro-Hungarian Empire it was indeed Hungarians and Austrians within the same within the same framework. So there was a big push on to to have a third, essentially a third kingdom within the empire, and that didn't uh, that didn't pan out as, as we saw during the second during the uh, First World War. But uh, as far as it's dead today, I mean, I mean that's that's sort of a, and I think that uh, President Putin has has been pretty good about appealing to that sort of sentiment, essentially positioning Russia as the protector of the Slavs, uh, wherever the Slavs might be. And Moscow during the 19th century always portrayed itself as the Third Rome. It was the heir to the Roman Empire, and then to Constantinople, and then it was the Third Rome after after those two Roman capitals. So I, I think that's. Uh, and I'm not a Russia specialist, but I think that there's at least something to something to that. Putin seem, does seem to be able to, to to reach out to that as well. Does it, we, don't, we certainly don't hear about it the way we did back in the 1990s when Bosnia and Kosovo and all that stuff was going on. But I think it may still be in there in the background. And I guess we will see uh, to what extent you can tap that. You did. Uh, you also called it. You also called attention to one other aspect. I think when you when you talked about those two empires, we we tend to. Uh, back to the cultural thing, we tend, from a cultural standpoint, to sort of think that the Western Front was the entire fight in World War One. You mentioned Tannenberg. There was indeed a great war of movements, and the Germans did quite well on the Eastern Front. 
there were also there was also maritime theaters in the Mediterranean, and particularly the operation at Gallipoli, and so on and so forth. So there was a, there really was a lot of stuff going on, and, as well as the uh, the trench warfare that we're so familiar with from uh, from movies and, and and books and so on and so forth. You know, one of the uh, one of the ways you led into your your uh, article on on uh, five ways Germany could have won the first battle of the Atlantic is is a discussion that Germany, as we know it now, and as, as the start of world before World War One was was actually a a, a remarkably new uh, country, and and some of what they were going through were simply growing pains. In in how much did that play into the fact, into the way they 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 uh, tried to take up the mantle as a sea power? Is that uh, can we kind of get into your article that way? Yeah, it, it, and it's I, I think that's uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just really if you think about British history and how long the British have been at this empire building business and how long they've been at this naval business. That's uh, I mean, Germany has only been a unified country since 1871. Before 1871, it was uh, on the order of 39 little countries, and uh, and before Napoleon, who actually simplified the arrangement, it was on the order of 360 little tiny tiny kingdoms and uh, principalities. And that's that's really uh, to unify that country and then to build a great navy and make yourself into a colonial empire all in the, in the space of around 30 years is, is a pretty big deal or it's a pretty big uh, effort to mount against a country that literally literally almost has uh, seawater flowing through its veins. That's that's the metaphor that uh, that Admiral Wagner, whose book I, I mentioned here and in other places, uh, used to describe the British. He essentially said, "Look, you know, we're a new country. We don't understand the sea." Or in, in contrast to the British, who have been on the strategic offensive for many centuries, looking for opportunities to gain new, new geographic points across the globe to support to support trade and naval pursuits, he, he simply thought that the, that the British had a cultural edge that Germans really that really never uh, quite caught on to, and that really made it a tough thing from a cultural standpoint for the Germans to catch up. I think that's a great name. You you, you actually stole part of my first question, but. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about Vice Admiral Wolfgang Vinegar. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce that in German. My German is worse yeah. than my English. Um, the, his critique of the what Imperial Germany did with its its navy. That's one of the things that has now gone on my to read list uh, because I, I actually have quite a bit on the the, the German navy in, in World War One. I'll, I'll bring up why maybe later, but. Uh, a lot of people have critiqued the decision made before the war of, of the Kaiser and Imperial Germany, really, in a larger sense, investing so much capital, steel, the opportunity cost of creating this, this very modern and uh, it proved itself, tactically at least, a very proficient naval fleet, that perhaps that wasn't the best investment in their resources. But I've always kind of looked at it differently as it wasn't so much a, a, a poor investment uh, in a bad opportunity cost, but they just never seemed to really understand what they could do with that fleet, building into that comment you made about the cultural, not understanding the sea. What are some of those things that, in hindsight at least, you can look at what they started the war with from a material point of view, that if they had the right intellectual thinking behind it, that they could have leveraged what they had and perhaps significantly impacted the course of the war. 
Yeah, again, again, you packed a whole lot of material into into one uh, simple sounding question. Uh, you, just, just for the readers who haven't are not familiar with this book, it's it's really one of the, uh, I mean, it's really one of the great works of sea power ever written in my view. It was how uh, Wegener's book is uh, is titled the uh, the naval strategy of the World War. I believe it's out of print. It certainly was out of print when I got my copy. Uh, but the, the Naval Institute put it out in their Classics of Sea Power series back in the late 1980s, if I recall, mid 1989 or thereabouts. But Wigner's uh, a fascinating character. He's kind of a uh, he's kind of a maverick, like a lot of theorists are, like like uh, Sir Julian Corbett, and to an extent, Mahan. These are people who were not necessarily popular with the with the old guard, with the with the old naval guard, and certainly Wigner made made no friends by critiquing Imperial German uh, naval strategy the way he did. But he did. I mean, he's, he pointed, he's, he said, I mean, for example, he said, look, we essentially made a cultural assumption about the Royal Navy, the, Brit the British Royal Navy. They will come into the North Sea, and we will thrash them because the British Navy always seeks out a decisive engagement at the beginning of a naval war. They take that, to, they take that Trafalgar, the big battle in 1805, and they apply that to, to Britain's maritime strategy and just say, well, the, the British will come and fight us because the British always go and fight. Well, the British didn't really need to go into the North Sea other than just to, to, to safeguard uh, Great Britain's shores against naval bombardment. So it was, uh, and that was, and Bigginer is deeply critical of that assumption just because, uh, just because the, the British could cordon off the North Sea and block Germany's ex ex access to the Atlantic Ocean without even going in and having an engagement. And indeed, Wigener uh, thought that was proper strategy. Corbett said, said much the same thing in his history of the, uh, of the First World War. So that's, uh, I guess that's point two under that. I, the other, uh, there's another aspect of this that, that, I would, uh, that I would point to, and this probably goes back to your, your point about uh, Germany being a maturing power but not really, a, not really an experienced sea power. I think there's a real tendency for these very energetic but uh, inexperienced powers like Imperial Japan, Imperial Germany, and so forth, to really latch on to, to big ideas like Mahan's ideas about uh, how to build a navy and uh, what makes a nation a great sea power, and really just sort of uh, and almost reduce those to tactics. Uh, Mahan himself said, "Look, the, the Germans, uh, the Germans are, are some of my favorites. You know, they, they are the people who've translated my books. The Kaiser says he's tried to memorize uh, Mahan's influence of sea power upon history, which is almost unbelievable. Our students don't even like to read it, much less memorize it." The Japanese had did lots of translations and tried to hire Mahan and so forth. These uh, these are powers that were really more Mahanian than Mahan, and they, but they also seem to take Mahan and just sort of cherry pick the the stuff about battleships and the decisive fleet engagements and reduce Mahan, who's a big, very big thinker, to tactics and to, and to assume there's going to be a big naval battle for its own sake. Not necessarily the case. Uh, I mean, it's, it's if you're the, even if you're the stronger naval power, you don't always necessarily risk your fleet. Uh, uh, if you don't need to, so yeah, I, I'm not sure that answered your question, but I think it, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of good grist in there. Yeah, I think I think one of the uh, my favorite quotes from your article was the uh, when you're talking about the the lack how you have to know your geography that you're dealing with, and the, <laughs> the Germans didn't seem despite the fact that they should have been fairly obvious they didn't seem to grasp their, their geographic limitations. And the the quote I liked was the uh, yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, really yeah. all you got to do is look at the map. If you can't get out through the English Channel and you can't get out between uh, Britain and the Orkneys <laughs> and and uh, and, uh, and Norway, what are you going to do? Yeah, your quote was facts of geography left Germany in command of water that meant little. I mean, I just thought that kind of kind of captured the. I guess they learned in World War II. You do point out that they uh, for their submarines, they, they they did make a push on getting the French and. Uh, and some of the other ports along the uh, 
the oh, English Channel. Yeah, in 1940, they outflanked. They, they did exactly what Wegener sees. I don't, Wegener was persona non grata, so they didn't give him credit, but they, they in effect, did, uh, did what he said they should do geographically. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, uh, they were, Germany had islands in the Pacific, and I, I, one would think, this is, I mean, why weren't they more uh, uh, sea aware than, 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 I mean, I know they've been historically, even in the short period of time they existed, a continental power, but, but why, how did they get away with being so unaware of the, of the importance of sea? I think, you know, I think it, it almost feels like they reverse engineered a rationale for building battleships, but just because battleships were cool. I mean, it's, uh, if you, if you listen to what Admiral Turpitz, sort of the Mahan, I guess he was sort of, sort of Germany's Mahan, although he wasn't a big thinker like Mahan or Corbett or one of these guys, but, uh, Turpitz said, hey, you know, let's, uh, I don't, I don't worry about policy, I don't worry about, uh, grand strategy, I build ships. The Kai, and a lot of what the Kaiser said, you know, it's very much in that spirit as well. Uh, I think it was uh, Howard Beale, Howard K. Beale, the, uh, the great uh, historian of Teddy Roosevelt's uh, diplomacy, who pointed out that a big part of a big reason for the Navy building that we saw, not just in Germany and Japan, but also here in the United States, was just because navies were so much fun to have. It was it was just fun to fun to steam around in those big uh, in those big dreadnoughts and, and so forth. So you get the you get the sense that uh, navies and navalists, people who who back uh, navy building. Have a real habit of uh, falling in love with platforms and losing sight of the big things, like uh, like the things that uh, Wigner calls attention to in his book. He essentially de- reduces sea power. He, he has a man, of course, has his uh, his way of defining sea power. All the theorists do. Wigner has an interesting way of doing it that we're, that uh, that bears on this point. He says, well, sea power essentially is three things: a strategic factor, geography, uh, a, a capable maritime state is going to be out looking for. Uh, perhaps not, perhaps not colonies, but at least, uh, but at least access to overseas ports, uh, so it improves its uh, geographic position. Secondly, he says, uh, he says obviously you need a fleet, merchant fleet, but especially, but especially a naval fleet. That's what he's thinking about, uh, always building the navy and, and thinking about uh, how to overcome uh, the strongest rival that you might get in a fight with. And thirdly, uh, he sounds like he almost sounds like Nietzsche, the great uh, the great philosopher of man and Superman, where he talks about and he talks about a nation's strategic will to deceive, which essentially I, I've always taken as meaning uh, what we call strategic culture. Does it does the nation have a culture that is that is favorable to seaborne pursuits? Does, is it always on the lookout for the for the ability to improve its geographic position and build a stronger navy? So, and I, to, to me, that's I mean that's one of, that's really one of the keys is and go, again goes back to it goes back to whether Germany is really a sea power in in that sense. Does it have that drive to the sea? Does it need to go to the, go to sea in order to be a great uh, industrial power? And so on and so forth. Interestingly, I think that uh, I think that the Chinese who have studied this uh, rather closely themselves are also asking themselves a lot of uh, a lot of these same questions. And uh, that's one of the reasons that this is a very uh, a very useful historical case to look at is just because it does shed some light on what we see going on in the world today. Well, it's another perfect lead-in to uh, the question that I wanted to, to ask you. You know, in Red Star over the Pacific, you and Toshi uh, spent a lot of time. An effort, and I, I think it's great the translations that y'all have had come out with that. I think it's that the book has good legs, uh, considering its kind of wonkish background. So congratulations to you and Toshi on that. Um, and we talked about Mahan, and to their credit, I think the, our our Chinese counterparts are, are really making a good effort intellectually 
to to look towards the past. They're, they read Mahan, arguably perhaps more than we do. Uh, and a lot of people, when they're trying to use a historical example of, of China, when maybe it's best just to say China is China, they do talk about Imperial Germany. What are those lessons that we, we believe that the Chinese have taken from a naval perspective, uh, whether it's, it's uh, strategy, operational concepts, or you know, shipbuilding priorities, uh, for a rising power that is building a navy, uh, uh, not really from scrap, but close to it from a modern context. What are those things that we, we think that, that China is looking at Imperial Germany as, as to put into the mix for their decision-making process? Yeah, I, th- I think there are, two, there are probably two things to call attention to. One, I think the uh, one I think the, the key, it's, it's not so much the Navy that, uh, that, that the, uh, the Chinese draw inspiration from when they look at the German example, although I think that they certainly ask themselves a lot of the same questions. Toshi and I have... Uh, uh, we've done a number of articles over the years, and I, I did a couple uh, even before that myself, essentially looking, make it, drawing this comparison, looking at the geography. We actually think that uh, we actually think that it would be wrong to poo-poo China just because it is a continental power, ringed by uh, ringed by island chains and so on and so forth. If you look at, if you were to compare the maps of those two countries, you'll see that uh, China has a lot more access to the sea than Germany ever did. I would certainly not uh, define the South China Sea or the East China Sea as, a, as dead seas, the way Wegener called the, the called the North Sea, for example. So yeah, so, the, so there's a lot, there's some of that stuff going on as well. I think that probably the bigger probably the bigger point that the the, the Chinese are thinking about with regard to this is more of a, of a diplomatic and a political point. They say, they say well. In a very short space of time, Germany essentially provided two different models for a rising power. And in fact, they did a, a book in the TV series a few years ago looking at this and trying to avoid uh, all the bad things that, the, that have befell the Germans and, and, and take inspiration from the good things that they did. Now, the two, uh, the two models would be uh, essentially Otto von, Bismarck's, uh, Otto von Bismarck's Germany, which, which would be up to about 1990 when the Kaiser fired him. And then the Kaiser's Germany, of course, after that. Which was uh, which was the one that marched uh, Europe into into World War One. The key points that the Chinese will will take out of these uh, cases are are these: For Bismarck Bismarck after he waged a series of very small and limited wars against Denmark, against uh, against Austria, and then against France, was able to forge a united Germany. But at that point, he's, he went out of his way to persuade all European states that this big this big new power in their midst was not going to. Uh, essentially attack them and steal their territory and do all of these other things. He tried to persuade European powers, France, Britain, and so on and so forth, that uh, the Germany was a satisfied power. It had no more designs on their territory and thus wouldn't do, uh, wouldn't march Europe into a general war. That model of self-restraint is the one that uh, the Chinese would like to emulate as they do what they what they think is uh, worth doing around their periphery. And of course, the, the bad example, of course, is the, is the Kaiser of Germany. Uh, the Kaiser is very erratic. You couldn't really predict what he was going to do. Well, it, we know as military people that you can either plan against capabilities or you can plan against intentions. If you have no idea whatsoever what the intentions are, what are you going to do? Well, if the, if, the, if, the, if the unpredictable power starts building a great navy, you're going to try to mash them ship for ship because you don't know what they're going to do with it. And that's uh, that's kind of a that's kind of a dangerous thing setting up a cycle of interaction across the North Sea between the British and the Germans, and that's what the that's what the Chinese would like to avoid with us in particular, we being the resident power in, in the Western Pacific. So I guess so I guess to, to boil all that down to a bumper sticker, 
I guess the I guess the takeaway is to be Bismarcky in Germany and don't be the Kaiser's Germany. <laughs> you uh, you 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 point out one of the other ways that Germany could have could have. Uh, been more successful in their in their maritime efforts in World War One, and and what, what I wrote down was go asymmetric early. Are the Chinese? Would you kind of talk about that? And are the Chinese uh, looking down that path too today? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's uh, and I, and I, again, I don't know that I would necessarily connect this to their directly to the reading of Germany. I mean, these these are people with minds of their own. They don't just try to slavishly follow up past examples. But I don't. I certainly don't think they would find anything in the German in the German case to disabuse them of what they have done. I would say that the the PLA Navy and the the supporting arms of sea power, you know, aircraft and so forth, operating from shore. This was very much an asymmetric force until the Chinese were pretty confident about their anti-access capabilities, and now they're starting to do things that look more symmetric, you know, building DDGs and building uh, aircraft carriers and so on and so forth. So yeah, I, I, and I think that's uh, so. I think that uh, if they, if indeed they do read German history and take inspiration, they probably find that as, a, as something that ratifies their approach. The uh, the PLA, actually, the PLA Navy has been kind of an interesting beast just because it did do the asymmetric thing first. But even as it starts doing the, I mean, it went back to the tradition of Mao, you know, Mao and uh, People's War at Sea and so forth. All of these, all of these small platforms that make things tough on a big navy around China's periphery, they've stayed true to that tradition, you know, with their with their Hobie catamarans and all their different uh, shore-based missiles and, th and so forth. Even as they start doing blue water things, so we see kind of an interesting uh, hybrid fleet coming into being that's uh, that's quite un unlike our own, which of course is a big a big ship fleet. I wanted to, to, to roll something by you here. When we look at a, a pre-war mentality and, and view and behavior, is, you know, we were talking about uh, you know, China, Imperial Germany, how does that react? But when, when you look at what happened again recently, um, we had the, the, the Chinese intercepting uh, one of our maritime patrol aircraft, this time one of our new P-8s, as opposed to one of our uh, old EP-3s like they did back uh, in 2001. When you look at a mentality, one thing that has characterized um, some parts of the Chinese military attitude, and I think in his, his book, um, um, Duty, uh, former Secretary of Defense Gates, mm -hmm. kind of touches on this as well, is there's a certain flintiness, a certain bravado, uh, a certain... Um, uh, Know, thumping of the chest due to insecurity that in some ways uh, reminds me of, in not Imperial Germany before the First World War, but Imperial Russia. And part of that uh, easily, easy to be offended, uh, what looks strong on paper may not be what can actually hit the field, um, strength in numbers, but weak in quality and modernity. Uh, are there some things about the, the, the mentality that helped lead to the First World War that involved the, the cultural and the attitude of Imperial Russia that might be a little close to the psyche that we see in present-day China. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. I've never, I've never really taken it on in any detail, but I, th I think there's probably something there. I uh, yeah, and, and again, you talk about bravado and flintiness and sort of uh, an almost uh, – a real insecurity on the part of the Chinese. I, I would go. I always, if I don't know what to say about a question, I usually usually fall back on Thucydides. I would go back to, uh, I would go back to Thucydides' ideas of fear, honor, and interest. Uh, 
the, the Chinese clearly are, are they're very cognizant of the fact that uh, well, well the, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, has has existed for uh, since 1949, and they really would like to, China to essentially put to rest the century of humiliation dating from the Opium Wars of the 1840s and forward. Uh, they would like to put that all behind them by the centennial of the founding of the PRC. So that's, I think that, and I think that's a, a real driver in there in, in a lot of the things that they're doing around their periphery. So you can see that you can see that they fear American dominance of their backyard. Uh, they have they have an honor motive in, in putting that century of humiliation at the hands of Western sea powers behind them. And then obviously they have material interests, just as we all do, just as we all do in the maritime realm, resources, control of territory, all the things that nation that nations tend to do. So yeah, and I, th I think that's I think you could probably could uh, bind that back to Russia. Henry Kissinger fa famously described the Russian Empire as defining its success as an empire by how much acreage it added to the empire every year. And so I don't see China as being a conquering power in that sense, but you do see that sort of restlessness and that sort of honor motive at play at play in China today. It's it is when dealing with the Chinese, dealing with the Chinese can be rather difficult once you flip on certain topics, maritime claims in the South China Sea or whatever whatever they might be, and you can see all these kind of things at work. I might, have, I might point out that the Russians had got their got their rear ends handed to them by the Japanese in 1904 and 1905. So perhaps that's a perhaps that's a caution for the for the uh, for the Chinese as they look out into the, into the world today. Well, you know, in the pre-show, I kind of talked about the impression I got of World War One, since we're talking about a hundred years ago. That that if there, I, I characterize it as a war that that started all wars. I mean, we've since World War One. Now let's talk about what the impact has been by the break up of the Ottoman Empire, what that's done to the Middle East. Talk about what, you know, we've got the Balkan situation, which also uh, arose ultimately out of World War I. Uh, we've got all kinds of, of situations, uh, you know, the, the breakup of the empires, which uh, affected Africa. How, how, how much can we look back at World War I and say it really was the start of a much bigger story than, than just a, a four-year or five-year period of war? Yeah, it is interesting to look ahead, to, to gaze ahead, and try to figure out what the how people will classify this uh, this long 20th century. Is, is is are we in the middle? I mean, obviously the British and the French didn't think they were fighting the Hundred Years' War back when they were fighting the Hundred Years' War. That was a title that was put on that uh, that long period of intermittent struggle by historians much later. It'd be interesting to know what to, what this era will be called uh, uh, by our children and grandchildren. The uh, yeah, as far as far as the legacy of World War One, I, I mean. It's, it, I mean, we, we, one thing we learned very clearly in the 1990s was simply the fact that borders don't always uh, allow a particular ethnic group, a particular group that just defines it as a nation or a religious group or whatever. That, that those those boundaries don't always conform to to political boundaries on the map, and that there's a lot of different cross-border claims. These lead to these lead to uh, to different political controversies, uh, raised passions, and all that all, all that sort of thing. There was a, I think it was Joseph Chamberlain, the, the uh, colonial secretary of Great Britain, during the Versailles conference after the war. Uh, actually, I may, I may have my speaker wrong, but it was one of the one of the protagonists at, at Versailles called it a, called it a bunch, a group of all all powerful, all ignorant men drawing lines on maps, essentially redrawing the map of the world to try to divide up the the Ottoman Empire and uh, uh, essentially apportion it out to the European powers. And uh, a lot of times, and people like Gertrude Bell, who are Middle East specialists from after the war, they, I mean, they observed that uh, that they simply observed that, observed that these borders a lot of times uh, did not make sense. 
the related thing from the British standpoint, of course, the United States didn't uh, didn't uh, gain territory out of World War One, but the, the the imperial powers, Britain and France, did, and these guys, these powers were exhausted powers. Britain essentially took on another million square miles of empire, even in even in 1918 and following, when it had very few resources, it dis, it demobilized its uh, demobilized its army. Uh, essentially took away the means to enforce such a big new a big new swath of empire that left Britain during the wars between the between the wars essentially trying to do things like police from the air sort of a precursor to our drone strikes that that we know today essentially try to try, try to uh, try to cow to cow middle eastern populations into submission from the air when they when they defied Britain's will so yeah there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there between exhausted powers trying to police big new empires uh, and, and, and also, and also, with simply having divided, uh, simply drawn borders where they didn't uh, necessarily make any sense. Something that we, interestingly, the uh, the ISIS, the, the ISIL, whatever you want to call it, the Islamic State over there, made a big deal about uh, essentially negating the border between Iraq and Syria because that overthrew the the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which essentially set that boundary way back when in the World War One era. So that's, that's something that's uh, very much living even in the region today. Yeah, I don't think that uh, is going to go anywhere anytime soon either. The, uh, you mentioned something earlier on in the show that I think you know people who do, I'm a, much to my family's chagrin when they're trying to get from point A to point B, I'm a notorious uh, monument reader. If I come across a monument, I have to stop and look at it. Oh, uh, yeah. It. Yep. Um, yeah, do it. <laughs> I get fussed out on a regular basis. And you're right, when you're over in the U.K., you see a memorial, and more often than not, it's about the Great War, the First World War, not the Second World War. And uh, there's also a small Belgian town that used to be about a 45-minute drive from where I used to live that has a really neat monument that originally I thought was religious because it's a gilded statue of Jesus, but it was actually a, a small village that was liberated twice by Americans, and it had a Belgian flag and American flag on either side of the, the statue of Jesus liberated by Americans after, uh, I mean, during both war, world wars. And uh, just about a, an hour drive from there into France, there was another small town that had a memorial. It had the people from the village in the local area who had died in conflict. World War One, you basically have one side of the obelisk and half of another. Second World War, you have a half dozen names. And... Uh, the impact of the First World War on the belligerent nations when we come up to the Second World War is something that I, I've never thought has really – I'll give you one example. Uh, Admiral Stavridis a few years ago, I saw he has a, a TEDx-type speech that he gave back when he was sack year, and he puts up there a picture of the French military academy class of 1914. Everybody in that picture was killed in, in the Great War. And he talks about uh, how that experience for the French in the First World War impacted their psyche and their ability to react to German aggression uh, 20 years later. Well, other nations had just as big of an impact, some more per capita basis than the French had, and obviously uh, it that manifested itself differently in other places. And I always thought that excuse... Uh, that is commonly used prevents people from really looking closely at the beginning of the Second World War. That when you looked at it on paper, uh, there's no reason the French army should have collapsed as fast as it was. There had to be, and there, there's been some good writing on it, 
some political military level mistakes, missteps, and inefficiencies on the French side that perhaps are, are more important uh, for people to think about and discuss than just to excuse the French performance based upon what happened in the in the First World War. Question to you after a, another too long question. You know what is what is your thought about that that common case uh, saying that they, that the French just couldn't make it happen because they're experiencing the First World War, and how did that experience of the Great War impact the major belligerents differently? Well, with regard to the French, uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly would not. Uh, I wouldn't be one of those who would trace uh, their collapse in 1940 back to back to the First World War. It does. It, it does feel like. I mean, if you read about France uh, during the wars, it does feel like they were really in a defensive crash after the First World War. If you think about, uh, I mean, we when we look at the end, when, any war termination settlement, but uh, I think it's particularly acute with the, with the, with the Versailles settlement. You always ask yourself if I want to if I want to, if I want to excuse me craft a durable peace. I need to ask myself, how much do I need to do militarily? How, do you, how far do I need to go? What do I demand at the peace table? Am I demanding too much, which is possible, because you can obviously create a power that's going to come back and try to turn the tables on you later. So do, do, am I demanding the right amount politically uh, that I've won on the battlefield? And finally, and this, of course, is the key question, is uh, who's going to enforce the peace? If you look at what happened with France, the, the French quite uh, clearly felt themselves to be abandoned by their British and American allies after the First World War. That left them looking for allies in places like Czechoslovakia, uh, you know, basically these small powers on either side of Germany that weren't going to do much, uh, weren't going to do much good to them in a, in a future conflict. And it, I think the, it, it almost it almost seemed like this really uh, almost, almost deflated the French psyche. But but again, I, I think you're right not to not to to, to overplay that too much. Uh, with regard, I mean, the Germans, the German military during the Second World War, uh, I mean, they, they really were quite innovative, in part, in part because of the harsh provisions imposed upon the Army uh, and the Air Force and so forth by the Versailles Settlement. They, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't keep large forces in being, so they fought. They, thought they, they kept the small corps. They thought about what to do, and this is where you see the, the, the concepts like Blitzkrieg, this innovative use of armor and infantry and air power together to punch holes in, to punch holes in, in, in an enemy's force. And that's, that's, that's something that really paid off for the Germans uh, in 1940. They, it's kind of interesting. After they, after they fought the short war with Poland and uh, did what they needed to do in Poland in 1939, they actually took a few. This was this uh, inaugurated the period of what, what was called the Phony War, when, when essentially the British and the French came into the war uh, into 1940, but there, there wasn't any fighting. The Germans, while that was happening, were essentially uh, looking at lessons learned from the war with Poland and updating their practices and doctrine and strategy and so forth. So uh, you got to give the you have to give the Germans credit for uh, for rolling up the rolling up the French. They actually did they did some things uh, things rather well. Not sure. I'm not sure how the French could have kept pace. There's an interesting book that we read with uh, that we read uh, with our with our junior course students about military innovation during the interwar period. It's written by Williamson Murray, our former colleague here at the, here at the War College. But they uh, they actually look at a lot of hardware stuff that that goes along with this in the different countries. And I think the key takeaway for their, from their book is that little little choices on hardware and doctrine can have huge effects down the road. Uh, for example, the the British, even though they pioneered naval aviation. 
they ended up falling behind and not being nearly as, as capable as the Japanese in the United States. So there's there's little ripple effects that uh, that will come back to bite you potentially in, in the future from choices that you make today. So kind of a ramble, kind of a ramble. But uh, yeah, I, w I certainly wouldn't fault the fault the French for just folding up like a cheap suit in 1940. One of the other great stories of World War One that uh, probably deserves more attention than we give it today. <clears throat> had to do with code breaking and things like the the uh, Zimmerman right. telegram, which uh, you know we're talking about long term effects. We, the the Germans uh, tried to sway the Mexicans into attacking the U.S. and reclaiming big chunks of the of the Southwest uh, yeah, United right. States. Uh, are there ramifications of that 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 linger on today, uh, or had an impact uh, in the years following uh, World War One? With the Zimmer, I, I don't think it. I don't think it lingers on so much here in the United States as uh, as, as far to the south. I mean, our, our uh, Latin American friends remember all this stuff forever. We hear we hear, for example, about the Monroe Doctrine and, and things like that so from our Latin American students to this day. The United States, or Americans, as you know, we're very historically forgetful. We don't, which I guess is good. Which I guess is good in a sense because we don't hold grudges the way the way other peoples do a lot of times. But at the same time, we also don't learn uh, learn what we probably should from history. Now, with with regard to the Zimmer, I mean, it's 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 another one of those things that's. I mean, what's happening in the United States during that period between the outbreak of World War One and the time the United States goes in goes into goes into France starting in, in April of 1917, and some of that stuff, uh, like you said, it, it has to do with Mexico. The United States intervenes in Mexico under President Wilson a couple of times. Wilson is extremely high-handed towards our uh, towards our Latin American neighbors. So he, for, for example, he he justifies occupying Veracruz uh, by the United States essentially going in and teaching the Mexicans to elect good men. That's very close to an exact quotation from from Wilson. So this, this is not the kind of thing that's going to set very well with your with your neighbors, especially given the United States uh, uh, history of of intervening around its periphery from the mid 1890s or so forth. So, so there's there's some bad feelings uh, to the south, but on the United States, I mean, there were certain, some recent things that have happened uh, within the last uh, few decades that would still have struck a chord with the, with Americans in those days. For example, think about during our Civil War, we we pay a lot of attention to, to Lee and Grant and all that, all those big events that are happening in the United States, but. At the same time, France uh, France took the opportunity to to essentially you mentioned Mexico to essentially invade Mexico and put of all things an Austrian prince Prince Ma uh, the Emperor Maximilian on the throne of Mexico, thus defying the Monroe Doctrine, thus establishing a, a position in the Western Hemisphere that was uh, directly threatening to the United States, especially if the Civil War ended up with uh, with a with a uh, a rift between the Confederacy and the United States over over the long haul. And so on and so forth. Uh, Spain came into the Western Hemisphere and did, did some things in the Caribbean and South America. These are so. Uh, I think these are some of the cultural reasons that the Zimmerman Telegram really created a lot of controversy because it looked like Europeans coming into our backyard and flouting what we saw as our prerogatives in our own backyard. And uh, that's something that's really going to resonate. You know, I wouldn't uh, limit this to the, the the major combatants of the First World War, but we always like to talk about. You know, you don't want to prepare to fight the last war, but you want to, you know, take what you, which you can learn from actual recent operational experience and, and decide what you need for a future fleet. And just looking at it from a naval point of view, by the time the Second World War comes around, uh, which, which nations seem to inculcate the lessons of the First World War and the interwar technical development uh, best 
and which nations just didn't really get it or weren't paying attention to what happened in the First World War and missed an opportunity to perhaps invest their money better in the fleet that showed up for the second. Oh, well, well, that leaves us with a lot of uh, a lot of contenders to talk about. Uh, well, I mean, obviously the Germans uh, the Germans did pretty well, except that uh, except that Hitler forced them into he forced them into war long before, it, especially the German Navy thought that it was going to be ready. Uh, the German, German naval commanders thought that they weren't going to go to war until 1945 or 1946, when a lot of the big things that we saw building at the beginning of the war would have been uh, would have been ready and would have equipped uh, Germany to to make a to make a good fight uh, vis-à-vis the uh, the Royal Navy in particular. So, in a sense, Germany did pretty well down on the operational and hardware and tactical levels, but obviously it was uh, very poorly led from a political standpoint and uh, and got into a fight before it was really was really ready to 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 uh, to take that and run with it. I think the uh, good reef. I think the well, I think the Japanese actually did, and I guess we could expand this out. The Japanese technically were a combatant in World War One and ended up at Versailles for uh, part of the peace settlement. The Japanese uh, the Japanese did it pretty well in a lot of ways, and particularly with uh, naval aviation. Ultimately, Yamamoto was able to to put to put aviation at the center of the Pearl Harbor strike and Japanese strategy. But they also did rather poorly in a lot of ways, particularly with submarine warfare. They built capable fleet boats, but then they simply did not use them against the U.S. Navy as it as it uh, moved men and material across the Pacific. It's just a, just a total mystery uh, why they didn't attack uh, transports and so forth and make things really hard on the United States, force the U.S. to divert assets from the Atlantic into the Pacific, and do all these things do all these things that you could do with that capable undersea fleet. So I think Japan was kind of a Japan was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, Great Britain, Great Britain again, I think. Uh, they chose. They chose to put a lot of their eggs in the in the fighter in the, in the fighter. You know the uh, the Royal Air Force and so forth, and and use land-based implements of sea power. Obviously, that worked out pretty well with them because they because you mentioned code break. They did code breaking well. They did uh, radar well. This this ended up working out pretty well for the British. Uh, man, as, as far as who did best, and I, I guess uh, I guess that that would be kind of a that would be kind of a big question to answer. The United States was sort of a mixed bag. We had a great undersea fleet, but we had crappy torpedoes. I mean, there's there's just a lot of a lot of little threads to pull there. One of the uh, one of the issues that that um, Britain faced, I'm not sure if Germany had the same problem, was the the loss of a lot of. Uh, and I'm going to credit Matt Hipple for this question. A lot of its best and brightest in the trenches and and battlefields of, uh, of France uh, yeah. during the war. Um, how much did that have an impact on uh, the Brits and the French and whoever and the Germans in World War II? Was there a, did, did the good did the right people learn the lessons of World War One, or was it was were the Brits drained very much so much that they they had trouble in World War One or World War Two? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's another great question from Matt. I, uh, but yeah, I, that's that's, a, that's really a big question. I don't. Uh, I think that I think it's, it certainly felt like the French were, as, I, as we as we discussed a few minutes ago, where the French really felt like they were sort of culturally drained. The British, the, the British, I think, just because they did keep trying to police that empire, and uh, you know, they did. You know, I guess they they sort of they sort of made out okay. They muddled they muddled through with the with, with the empire, the expanded empire that came out of. Uh, that came out of uh, uh, World War One. With it does it does feel as though the, as though the British were not. I mean, there was obviously a lot of cultural stuff going on in Great Britain. If you look at the uh, at the literature and the art and all that stuff uh, from, in Great Britain from the uh, 
I do it from the interwar years. A lot of it is very bleak. There was a great book uh, a few years ago by a, a historian by the name of uh, Richard Overy, who wrote the wrote the, the huge book uh, How the Allies Won. But he also did he also did a book about why Great Britain, even though it didn't suffer nearly as much in World War One as the as France, for example, or Germany, why it was so culturally pessimistic during the war. That was the area. That was the era in which uh, George Orwell was doing his works. Uh, Aldous Huxley was doing his works, and all these all of these things. So British society, I think British society, I think, had a, a really visceral response to the to the conflict, but it didn't really. It didn't. My impression is that it didn't really translate into the armed forces, which by all account, by all accounts were extremely professional uh, and, and very motivated, and, and, and all the things that you like to see in a military force. So. So I think that I think the British made out made made out reasonably well. The French not so well. The United States, as we know, withdrew unto itself, except for except for commerce and things, and uh, and tried to forget about World War One. So and indeed, I think we overreacted. We, we probably overreacted, but we had all the the devil theories of war and all that stuff floating around after after World War One. So it's so again, I've, I'm not sure I'm not sure you could come up with a ranking of these uh, things too well, but. Certainly, different powers did, and of course, the Germans took uh, took inspiration out of World War One with Hitler's stab in the back theories and all of these things that were in uh, that were in vogue during the war, and actually helped Hitler come to power in the 1930s. So, I guess in a, in a sense, the Germans drew sustenance out of that experience from a political standpoint, from a passion standpoint, as much as from uh, you know war fighting methods and so forth. As usual, I have another hour's worth of questions, but I'm not going to impose on you for another hour. Uh, I don't know if I have a, I don't know if I have another hour's worth of answers, but we've we, we, <laughs> <right. laughs> no. I was even both, both of another reason I kind of like the World War One topic, and um, I've enjoyed reading a lot of things online. Is both of my grandfathers were uh, battle, battleship sailors in the First World War, which was oh, you know, talk oh, about awesome. talk about deployed tonnage that did a bunch of nothing, but they you know it, had, it was a good experience. Um, yeah, there's a, I mean the Navy has a fascinating experience in that time with, with the Asiatic fleet. My uh, my current project is a is a history of the U.S. Asiatic fleet. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in that period, uh, especially leading up to the First World War. But really, from Commodore Perry's voyage to Japan in the 1850s, really all the way up to 1942 when the fleet is sunk, really quite interesting. The um, speaking of interesting, we mentioned one book, um, uh, Wolfgang's uh, the, the Naval Strategy of the World. Uh, of the World War, uh, are there some other books out there for people that are interested in doing more than what I've done this summer, which is reread the Guns of August about the yeah, First yeah. World War that may be um, uh, you know, in the background that would really be worth their time to read? And as a follow-on question, you also have another book kind of in the works. I didn't know whether you wanted to uh, show a little bit of leg here, but if I talk about what you have coming up as well. Uh, as far as what I've got coming up, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working on the Asiatic fleet, kind of as a kind of as a model as what, uh, really a model for what the United States or any navy that that has a small fleet out in somebody else's backyard ought to do. You know, Japan being the dom the dominant regional power in those days, and obviously China becoming a a, a serious player in the Western Pacific today. So I'm, I'm having a look at that. Uh, there actually hasn't ever been a, a history strictly of the Asiatic fleet. So it's kind of trying to break a little new ground here. Toshi and I have just uh, have just concluded a contract uh, to do a to do essentially a Red Star of the Pacific version uh, for applied to Japan. So we'll have a look at Japanese sea power from a from a grand uh, from a grand standpoint. As far as the as far as the book recommendations, uh, I, I think we only have a minute or so. The, probably the one book in one book that I thoroughly enjoyed. It's a it's a real doorstop. But uh, Robert Massey's book. 
Dreadnought, which is about the coming of the Great War and the, and the great naval arms race, is fantastic. It's, it's kind of neat because it has a lot of capsule biographies of all the different players, Jackie Fisher, obviously, Jill, you know, all, all these different big, uh, the Kaiser, all these big players in these events. You can really get a pretty good intro into World War One within one cover and also get a good dose, dose of naval stuff. Uh, the other the other books would be Paul Kennedy's works, He's familiar from uh, Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, but also did a fantastic book called The Rise of the Anglo-German Antagonism, and also and also a history of the of the naval competition. So I guess those would be sort of the, I guess those would be the two authors I would check out if you, if you're eager to get a window into this stuff. Well, excellent. Well, uh, again, really appreciate you taking time to come for a return visit to, to Midrats. It's been a real enjoyable uh, hour, and I encourage everybody. Uh, before the month of August is over, if you haven't done already, uh, do a little bit of reading and thinking about the First World War. And uh, look forward to reading the stuff you have coming down the road, Jim, and uh, hope you have a, a, a good year coming up this fall. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thanks for being here, Jim. You bet. Talk soon. And thank you very much for joining us here on MidRats. Uh, we'll be having a best of next weekend. But until we see you back, hope you have a great Navy Day. Cheers. by Lexus Spring Collection Sales Event. The perfect time to experience the peace of mind of an unlimited mileage L-certified warranty and complimentary maintenance plan. For a limited time, get 0.9% APR on IS, ES, and ES Hybrid L-certified models. See Lexus of Jacksonville and Lexus of Orange Park. Not all customers will qualify. Offer ends May 31st. Time restrictions pursuant to L-certified warranty and maintenance plan apply. See your Lexus dealer for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.